Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. On February 29th, the United States and the Taliban entered into an agreement that would see the complete pullout of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. In return, the Taliban would renounce international terrorist groups like al-Qaeda and the Islamic State and prevent those groups from plotting foreign attacks from Afghan soil. Now, despite how this has been characterized in some quarters of the media, this is very much not a peace deal, says my guest today, Michael Kugelman. He is the Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson Center, and this is a point he really wanted to emphasize from the very top of our interview. And indeed, it was a point that was underscored in the days following the signing of the deal, when the Taliban launched several attacks in Afghanistan. In fact, just a few hours before we spoke, there was yet another major attack at a political rally in Kabul. In this episode, we discuss what is included in this deal and what is not included, and what this agreement means for the future of Afghanistan. Now, it's worth emphasizing that this deal was negotiated directly between the United States and the Taliban. The Afghan government, which the United States is ostensibly in Afghanistan to support, was deliberately excluded from these negotiations. Accordingly, as Michael Kugelman explains, there is just a lot of uncertainty around what happens next in terms of how the Taliban will enter into negotiations with the Afghan government, or if they'll enter into these negotiations at all. I think you'll find this conversation very useful. It gives you some really good background on what led to the negotiations and to this deal between the Taliban and the United States and raises some key questions about what comes next. And one quick note before we start, I still do have some office hour slots available. If you are a premium subscriber and want to schedule a time to chat with me about anything on your mind, uh, please do follow the links that I sent you in a recent email to schedule a time. I, I do have some slots left. If you are not yet a premium subscriber and want to become one to schedule a chat with me or unlock any of our other bonuses, including episodes and access to my daily global news clips service, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches. And today's episode is brought to you by Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. And if recent news has taught us anything, it is that the world needs many, many more global health professionals. So do check out that program. And if you have any questions about the program, you can always just get in touch with me, and I'd be glad to put you in touch with the people at Northwestern. All right, now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? 
Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I've been struck by um, how so much media coverage and also um, broader commentary on the U.S.-Taliban agreement uh, that took place some days ago. Um, There's been so many references to it as a peace deal. And that is, uh, you know, 100% wrong. Um, You know, the deal that was signed between the two sides um, didn't say anything about um, peace or even um, having a ceasefire or reducing violence. And so, you know, indeed, in the days after that agreement was signed, um, you had a number of uh, Taliban attacks on Afghan security forces. You had the U.S. launch an airstrike on the Taliban. Many people were saying, well, this deal has fallen apart. This peace deal is not really a peace deal, but in fact, it was not meant to be a peace deal to start with. So I think that anytime you have a discussion about um, this very significant agreement between the U.S. and the Taliban, it's important to get that very simple fact uh, right, that it was not at all um, a peace agreement. The idea is to get to a point where you can start a peace process after that agreement um, was signed. And just to emphasize that point, you know, we're speaking as news is coming out of Afghanistan of yet another attack on a political rally, this time of uh, one of the the rivals for the presidency, Abdullah Abdullah. You know, some number of people were killed. We don't know sort of who's claimed responsibility at this point, or maybe we do, maybe you do. I, I haven't seen it. Um, but you know, there's another point of emphasis that, you know, violence is still very much ongoing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's really been nonstop violence, unfortunately, ever in the the days, the relatively few days since the U.S.-Taliban agreement was signed, which is indeed a reminder that the war, the war rages on in Afghanistan. So this was not a peace deal, but it was an agreement. Uh, What did the agreement stipulate? Well, you know, it took so many months to get to the point where the agreement was signed. At the end of the day, uh, it really is a rather simple agreement in terms of what's in there. Um, The main thing is that it sets a timetable for a withdrawal of U.S. troops. Essentially, it stipulates that um, there will be about 3,500 U.S. troops that withdraw from Afghanistan without any conditions uh, over the next few months. I think the time period is over about 130 days. Uh, And then the idea is that... um, the U- United States would withdraw all remaining troops from Afghanistan within 14 months, so long as the Taliban has upheld its commitments featured in the agreement. Um, and that gets to the other main component of this deal, <clears throat> pardon me, which is that um, the Taliban claims to renounce all ties to international terror groups. And the deal lays out in some detail what it expects, what the expectations are that the Taliban will do to sever all ties with international terror groups. Basically, it entails not providing space, training, or any type of support to groups that pose threats to U.S. security and to its allies. And that wording is very interesting. Um, and, that, and then the other, the other main thing that the deal lays out is that um, in, you would have the, uh, the United States would agree to a release of up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners 
um, really by early uh, early to mid March, which is pretty significant. And, and, and wait, and these these prisoners are in U.S. custody or in Afghan government custody? Well, see, that's the thing. These are prisoners. I mean, I imagine some could be in U.S. custody, but many of them are in <clears throat> in Afghan custody, uh, and that's significant, given that um, you know the the Afghan government was not involved in these negotiations between the U.S. and the Taliban. So essentially, here is an agreement which basically said that you're going to have the release of several thousand Taliban prisoners, many of them in the custody of the Afghan security forces, and not surprisingly. Um, as you know, in the days after the deal was finalized, you had a, a large amount of unhappiness from the Afghan government in which the president, President Ashraf Ghani, said, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to release these prisoners and certainly not this soon. You could understand why, because, you know, really for the Afghan government, that's a significant point of leverage. Um, you know, and, and I, having, you know, these, these Taliban prisoners in its custody, and clearly what the Afghan government would prefer to do is to not just release them so quickly, but more to keep them, to use it as a bargaining chip, and to, you know, try to negotiate later on, once the Afghan government begins negotiations with the Taliban, then it would want to pick, pick up that issue of the Taliban prisoners. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, because, you know, as you said, you know, and it's worth emphasizing again, that this agreement did not involve at all the Afghan government. It was between the U.S. and, and the Taliban. And the idea is that subsequent to this agreement, uh, the Afghan government and the Taliban would enter negotiations. But you're saying that, you know, this, insi- this, this point in the agreement that calls for the release of Taliban priv- uh, prisoners undermines the Afghan government's negotiation, negotiating position pretty significantly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think on the whole, what really, one of for me, one of the big takeaways of the U.S.-Taliban deal is that it is very generous to the Taliban. <clears throat> I mean, it really, the Taliban uh, really gets a lot without having to give much in return, give up much in return. I mean, as I mentioned before, you're going to have more than 3,000 U.S. troops leaving Afghanistan without any conditions. The idea and the agreement is to get uh, several thousand Taliban prisoners released. And also, something else I didn't mention, the deal lays out the uh, a plan for the U.S to go to the United Nations and start trying to arrange for um, uh, the Taliban to be removed from the UN sanctions list. Um, all of that, those are, those are significant concessions um, to the Taliban. And in return, all the Taliban has to do per the agreement um, is agree to renounce all ties to international terror groups and also um, uh, be willing to launch talks, um, formal peace talks with the Afghan government. There's no expectation in the agreement that the Taliban would reduce violence, that it would declare a ceasefire or anything like that. And this is one of the, the many reasons why this agreement has attracted a fair amount of criticism, because it, it seems to be uh, a lot too generous to the bad guys, so to speak. So on that point of renouncing international terrorism, I mean, to what extent are ISIS and Al-Qaeda still active in, in Afghanistan? And presumably, I should say, it says nothing of um, al-Qaeda and ISIS presence in uh, Pakistan over the border, where there's also significant Taliban influence. Yeah, this, this is a very good point. And um, you know, you've had a number of U.S. government statements in recent years that have indicated that there are well more than a dozen international terror groups with the presence in Afghanistan. And so presumably um, that suggests that every one of the, that the Taliban should be renouncing ties to every one of those groups. And, you know, those are groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but also some Pakistani terrorist organizations like Jaish-e-Mohammed 
uh, Lashkari Taiba, all of which have a presence in Afghanistan. On one level, I think that it's it's not a very heavy lift for the Taliban. This this idea that it should be severing all ties with international terror groups. You know, the two main global jihadist groups in Afghanistan, Al Qaeda and ISIS. Let's start with ISIS. ISIS is not a friend of the Taliban. The Taliban is, has already. Uh, it's not like it severed ties with ISIS. It never had ties with ISIS to start with. They're rivals, and that's because um, the Taliban is allied with was is allied with Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda and ISIS are rivals. So, in fact, what we've seen uh, in the the few years since ISIS developed a presence in Afghanistan, we've actually seen Taliban forces fighting against ISIS fighters on the battlefield in Afghanistan and doing quite well, I should say. So, that's not a big deal for, for when it comes to ISIS and the Taliban. This idea of renouncing ties to this group because it never had ties to the group to start with. Al Qaeda, meanwhile, is very closely aligned with with the Taliban for sure, but you know, Al Qaeda is not what it used to be. It's it's a shadow of its former self. It's a much weaker, more degraded organization in Afghanistan than it was, say, in the late '90s when it was there helping plot the uh, the 9/11 attacks. It's just a very different type of organization. I don't think the Taliban needs the support of Al Qaeda in ways that it used to. Um, but I should but, say, I'll, I'll admit, you know, to to that end, that I just Googled whether or not Ayman al Zawahiri was still alive. I just like hadn't thought about him in in a very long time, and right. he's a, the the second in command, or not now is the the, the head of of Al Qaeda. Right. Um, so yeah, before we talked, it just sort of dawned on me uh, that I hadn't heard from him much in a while or seen the video. But apparently, he did release a video in September. I just I missed it. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 the he's the leader. But in, in, indeed, these days, when you look at Al Qaeda as an organization, it's 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 affiliate groups, uh, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa. That's where the strength is. So you know, Al Qaeda Central, so to speak, the main leadership of Al Qaeda and all its support bases, um, not as strong as it used to be, and certainly the presence of Al Qaeda in, in Afghanistan really is relatively modest. So that's why I think that this idea that Oh, we're just we're, we're asking the Taliban to uh, renounce its ties to Al Qaeda, its longtime partner. It's that's not really as difficult as as it may seem. But the problem, and I think this is another area of criticism about this agreement, it is not clear from the agreement how and who, or what what mechanism there will be in place to ensure that the Taliban is indeed denying space to any type of international terrorist group. Um, you know, we've heard that there had been some reportage that there may be some type of mechanism. Uh, in place that uh, may be laid out in one of these so-called secret annexes of the agreement that has not been made public. But I think that we need to know if there is any type of mechanism in place to ensure that the Taliban is upholding its commitments in, in this agreement. We need to know about them. And at this point, we don't, or at least those of us in, in the public don't know anything about this. So what does the fact that this agreement is, as you say, so generous to the Taliban suggest to you about you know the domestic american politics at play in in getting this deal done yeah well that's 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 a great point i think what it indicates it indicates several things above all it indicates that the united states or the trump administration was in a rush to get a deal now yes you could say it took well more than a year almost two years to get this deal with the taliban and that back in september just when we were hearing that a deal is about to be finalized president trump called off the talks altogether but I would argue that you know the fact that this deal gives so much to the Taliban, I think, is an indication of just how much the U.S. was willing to sort of, you know, be willing to say, okay, we're not getting an ideal deal here. We could 
try to hold out and negotiate for more, but you know, we need to finalize this deal. President Trump wants to get out of Afghanistan. He was never comfortable staying there. President Obama was not comfortable staying in Afghanistan either, but President Trump even more so wanted to get out. I think he very reluctantly announced an Afghanistan strategy in 2017 that entailed staying in Afghanistan. He always wanted to leave. And I think for him, uh, he wants to be able to um, have a fair number of troops exiting the country um, by the time of the presidential election in 2020. And indeed, what that means is that um, the entire negotiating process between the U.S. and the Taliban was carried out essentially on the Taliban's terms. The Taliban had said from the start that it did not want the Afghan government involved in the talks with the U.S., and that's exactly what happened. The Taliban had said that it did not want to discuss issues like you know, a broader intra-Afghan dialogue with the Afghan government or issues of ceasefires. It did not want to, discri- did not want to dis- negotiate that until after it had a deal with the U.S. That's exactly what it got. And another issue here is that the Taliban has leverage. It knows that the U.S. is in a rush to get a deal. The Taliban is really in no rush to get a deal. It's perfectly happy just to keep fighting where it thinks it's winning the war. But because the U.S. has been in a rush and the Taliban is not, that's given the Taliban the luxury of taking its time and, uh, you know, being willing to back out of any demands uh, that or rejecting any demands that it doesn't like. So this is what I think there was an, as- an asymmetry in the negotiating power structure in which the Taliban just had the leverage and it knew it had the leverage. It knew it was going to be able to get a deal that would be on its terms. And that's one reason um, why we got this, uh, why we got this deal. But the fact that the U.S. was in a rush you know, it made it difficult for for American negotiators to really push back hard against the Taliban in ways that it would have wanted to, um, ideally. And of course, you know, I'll end here. This is, I think, sort of fuels these these narratives, um, certainly in Afghanistan, but also among some opponents, critics in the U.S. That you know, this is more of a of a surrender deal or a withdrawal deal than anything else. It's harsh criticism, but I think one needs to take that seriously. And it also does seem, I, I can't do the math in my head, but in, in the 13 or 14 months from now, you know, might be after January 21st, 2021, where there, you know, very well be, be a new U.S. president. Yeah, this is exactly true. So, I mean, you know, given that there's 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 going to be an election, that there could be a new election, a new president, you could argue that this could be perceived as a case of the Trump administration wanting to kick the can down the road because, you know, whoever is going to be occupying the White House and say, uh, what, April or so of 2021, uh, April or May of 2021, will have to make a really big decision. That administration will have to decide, well, has the Taliban upheld all of its commitments in the agreement signed in February 2020? And if so, that means that we need to complete the job and get all of our troops out of Afghanistan. We need to go to the zero option. Uh, and it would be a pretty significant decision because if we go to the zero option in Afghanistan, there you know there could be significant stability implications for not only Afghanistan and the region. So I think that the biggest decision yet for in terms of U.S. policy in Afghanistan, that's not going to come for quite some time. When indeed, as you say, uh, you know there's going to be a new president, whether it's Trump or or someone else. So the agreement does call for uh, Taliban Afghan negotiations, the the inter Afghan dialogue. Um, what, how, how does that proceed and what are some of the key, um, you know, points to negotiate? Yeah. So, I mean, so the idea, the main, one of the major objectives of the U S Taliban agreement was to, uh, essentially create a path 
to launch a peace process. And so when the agreement says that, um, you know, this agreement uh, entails that the Taliban will begin an inter-Afghan dialogue, it's basically meant to be a pivot or a springboard. Now, in terms of what the inter-Afghan dialogue is all about, it essentially will, it's meant to consist of a broader um, debate, discussion, negotiation involving the Taliban, the Afghan government, and other uh, Afghan political stakeholders, including perhaps some that are not uh, in government or even politics. This could entail having civil society representatives, including hopefully women, um, which is one of the big questions as well, if the Taliban would agree to sit for formal talks with, with women. I certainly hope the answer will be yes. The major issue, um, as laid out in the U.S.-Taliban agreement, um, is that one of the major initial issues to be discussed in the intra-Afghan dialogue is a ceasefire. I think the idea is to really, as a, as a goodwill or a confidence-building gesture, really, and also a way to break the ice, is to get some commitment from the Taliban to have some type of ceasefire, even if it's a temporary one. That would then allow for more trust and just a better environment for the two sides to start discussing um, uh, broader uh, broader issues about a settlement. And, you know, the other main issue that'll be, that'll be discussed in, in the intra-Afghan dialogue is this notion of some type of political settlement that leads to a power sharing deal that can end the war. So in other words, you know, the objective will be to come come to some type of resolution in which you could have a post-war, which you could have a, the war end and then some type of new government that would entail the Taliban sharing space, sharing power with um, the Afghan government and, and others. Kind of like a, a classy, a, a, pardon me, a classic way that these things end is is by bringing insurgent groups into the fold of government, you know, giving them patronage, giving them, you know, government positions, making them vice presidents, you know, as a way to kind of bring them in, in the tent. But that seems at least now like a very far off proposition. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be an incredible challenge. I mean, you know, we we've heard so much about how the uh, the path to the U.S. Taliban deal was very fraught and very messy. But honestly, <laughs> compared to what's ahead with the intra-Afghan dialogue, uh, you know, the U.S. Taliban deal was really like a walk in the park. It was the low hanging fruit that was really easy to finish off. But yeah, this intra-Afghan dialogue is going to be tough. Um, you know, I think for me. One of the major questions is, you know, this is the Afghan Taliban. This is an organization that until relatively recently had never really demonstrated any particular interest in peace uh, and in not fighting. This is this is an organization that has long rejected um, the the Afghan political system as it exists. So I think it's a fair question to ask. Would the Afghan government at the end of the day, despite all the nice things it's saying and its messaging and all that, would the Afghan government really want to share power within a political system and with people that it has long rejected? Uh, I think for me, that's really an, an, an overarching question. I think a big challenge in this negotiation will be how to develop the right incentive structure where the Taliban can finally uh, conclude that uh, it, it's, it's better off by... Um, not fighting anymore by laying down its arms. You know, as you have U.S. troops leaving Afghanistan, and again, we're going to have about 3,500 leaving over the next few months, um, conditions free, that's going to give the Taliban uh, more of a battlefield advantage. Um, and if, if the U.S. concludes that the Taliban has upheld its commitments of severing ties with international terror groups by the spring of 2021, you're going to have all U.S. troops leaving. And once you have basically the entire U.S. troop presence leaving Afghanistan, wouldn't the Taliban see that as a huge battlefield opportunity, an opportunity to just overthrow the government there by force, which has been wanting to do for so long anyway? 
Um, so I, I, I think it's going to be really tough um, to get the Taliban on board with um, a peace process and, and more so agreeing to, to peace. And finally, there are also a number of questions about how how the um, the structure of a power sharing deal would look like. I mean, as indeed as you mentioned before, one option is to have is to give uh, the Taliban control of several ministries. Um, you know, have a, a former Taliban figure you know lead a ministry or two. But at the same time, you look at Afghanistan now. I mean, you've got um, about forty to fifty percent of the districts in Afghanistan, and there are several hundred of them that are currently um, controlled or contested by the Taliban which is more so than at any other time since the U.S. entered in 2001. So, you know, another thing that the Taliban may push for is that it simply be formally ceded the territory in Afghanistan that it controls right now. And that would sort of be at odds with this idea of letting it control several uh, federal ministries. So it's messy. It's challenging. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it plays out if it actually gets off the ground. I certainly hope it does. But it's messy. I mean, you know, is a sort of return to what Afghanistan looked like before September 2001, kind of a theocracy ruled by, you know, that shadowy character, Mullah Omar, that kind of political system, still a potential outcome? Yeah. So it's a a great question. Uh, You know, the, the Taliban over the last few years has done so much to try to convince audiences in Afghanistan and more broadly that this is a very different type of Taliban. It's a very different beast than you had in the late 90s. Um, And you see this uh, not just by the willingness of the senior leadership of the Taliban to actually have negotiations with the U.S. and potentially with the Afghan government, uh, you know, but also in 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 some of the efforts it's made um, more broadly. Uh, You know, there was very uh, famously, or should I say infamously, um, you know, the number two leader of the Afghan Taliban, a member of the feared and murderous Haqqani network, published an op-ed in the New York Times in which he said, or whoever wrote the article for him, saying that, you know, the Afghan Taliban is ready for peace. You know, we're a moderate force. We're ready to work with, with, all, with any and all partners. So I think that the idea here for the Taliban is to project itself as a more moderate force probably in order to help it get legitimacy and to make it clear to the Americans and to the Afghan government that it really would be a good faith negotiating partner. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But yeah, the bottom line is ideologically, is this a different organization? Now, there are optimists, uh, including many in, in Afghanistan, that, that believe that the you know there have been generational changes and you've got this new younger leadership uh, within the Taliban that really does want to do things differently. And when it comes to the treatment of women, for example, uh, you've had senior Afghan, uh, senior Taliban leaders say that um, you know women's rights will be respected. Um, but then there's always the caveat: so long as it um, upholds the tenets of Islamic law. Now that's a purposely vague statement, right? The Taliban used to interpret Islamic law in the most, um, uh, the strictest, most conservative uh, way possible. Um, are they suggesting that their interpretation has changed? They won't say. You know, my own view. You know, the, the track record of the Taliban suggests that they are, you know, a very retrograde, militant, militantly, my, ideologically minded organization. Um, but then again, you know, you look at some of these, this territory that the Taliban controls now, um, and they have in many cases tried to act as a, lack of a better phrase, a, you know, a friendly winning hearts and minds insurgency in the sense that they have set up parallel um, governments that provide services, 
Um, you know, it's not like they're just running around killing everyone they see. Um, so, you know, you have to sort of weigh the past track record, which is very troubling with some of the more recent indications we've had of where they've tried to set up, um, uh, reasonable systems where they provide services and, and all that. But, you know, honestly, I, I think that we have to be very, very skeptical. And I think until we actually see the Taliban in action, showing that it's willing to be different than it was in the late 90s, I think we need to be very concerned. And for good reason, you have so many Afghans, particularly Afghan women, that are very, very worried about what could happen um, if the Taliban were to be in a position where it had some degree of power. So we've talked at length about the Taliban's you know, capacity and, and willingness to enter into these negotiations. What about the Afghan government? I mean, it seems right now they're, you know, as we speak, there's like a very divided Afghan government between, you know, one camp that thinks Abdullah Abdullah won the election, the other camp that thinks Ashraf Ghani won the recent election. Does the Afghan government or governments uh, have the capacity to enter into these negotiations in, in like a meaningful way? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Mark, because, um, you know, we've talked at length indeed about how the, the Taliban could pose an obstacle um, to talks. But absolutely, at least in, especially in the initial stage of talks, um, the Afghan government could be an obstacle as well. Um, and that is because you have deep, deep divisions, not just within the government, but also within the broader political class. I mean, as you know, there was a presidential election way back in September the final results were delayed for a long time. And then finally, they were released just a few days before the US Taliban deal and the elections found that Ashraf Ghani had won by a relatively small margin, had been reelected. And, um, you know, just about everyone believes that it was a fraudulent election. And Abdullah Abdullah, who is Ashraf Ghani's main rival, they served together in the national unity government previously, he rejected the election results. And he had hasn't been doing this as much in recent days, but he had been threatening to launch a parallel government. So basically, you've got major rivalries and disputes between key political leaders. And yet, if you're going to have an intra-Afghan dialogue, if you're going to have an Afghan peace process, you need the government and the state more broadly, the you know other political leaders, political stakeholders that are involved in these negotiations, you need them to be united. You, you need them to pre- present a common front in order to be able to negotiate effectively with the Taliban. And I fear that could be very difficult to do now since you have all these divides. And, you know, as for President Ghani himself, I mean, there are a number of of observers, including myself, that fear that he actually may not be as committed to a peace process uh, as as many would like him to be, because I think that this is someone who, who really wants to maintain power, for sure, and um, think that he fears if there's a peace process and uh, certainly if there's a peace deal, you know, he could lose power. There could be a whole new um, power sharing arrangement or the Taliban may demand some type of interim government to be in place during a negotiation, even right after a presidential election that Ghani believes he's won. So I think that Ghani is a bit cautious about the peace process. Um, you know, others don't agree. They think that, you know, it's, the war has never been more intense and deadly. We really need to get a peace process started. But indeed, I think that even the simple task of putting together a negotiating team, identifying the people to be in the government's negotiating team, that could be very difficult just because of all these divides and divisions that uh, that I mentioned before. Uh, so lastly, in, in, in our last minute, uh, what sort of 
moments or inflection points or decisions or events will you be looking towards in the coming you know days and, and weeks and months that will suggest to you whether or not uh, this U.S. Taliban agreement will have any meaningful impact in you know the future of Afghanistan politics and. Well, I mean, I think that the, really the, the main hope of this agreement, this U.S. Taliban agreement, was to basically kickstart a formal peace process. So, uh, you know, I think that if if we're going into into the spring, if it gets to be the end of March, we go into April, and there still has not been any efforts to begin this inter-Afghan dialogue, then I think we have to worry. And the longer you go without the inter-Afghan dialogue starting, the more the, the momentum the momentum from the U.S. Taliban agreement will be lost. And also, you know, the more the time goes by, the more the violence will be ramped up, unfortunately. I mean, we've already seen that in recent days. But, you know, the Taliban uses violence as leverage. It tries to scale up violence to strengthen its, its future bargaining position, it tries to scare the other side to be willing to make concessions. And the more time goes by without launching an inter-Afghan dialogue, the more the violence there will be. And I think that would make cre- create a mood that um, may make it difficult to have the right amount of trust uh, in the room initially, potentially, between the Taliban and an Afghan negotiating team. But um, I think more in the near term, one thing that I'll really be looking at is this issue of the um, the prisoner release. I mean, this has become a big uh, possible tension point. President Ghani has said that he is not ready to have all of these Taliban prisoners released, whereas the Afghan Taliban has said in several statements that it will not talk, it will not negotiate, it will not meet with the Afghan government until you have the release of those prisoners. So the ability for the various sides, probably with U.S. mediation, to work out that initial dispute, I think will go a long way toward determining if this intra-Afghan dialogue process can get off the ground anytime soon. But I think I hit on a point that we also need to keep in mind. Even though this is meant to be an intra-Afghan dialogue, essentially an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned thing, that's the big catchphrase you hear, I think there's an expectation, certainly from the Afghan government, maybe from the Taliban too, that the United States will continue to play some type of role, not a formal overt role, it won't be at the table, but it will be there behind the scenes uh, trying to encourage you know, both sides to be committed, to move forward. I imagine the U.S. could even try to get the likes of Pakistan to push the Taliban to remain committed. So I think that even though it's meant to be an Afghan uh, dialogue, you're going to continue to have involvement from outsiders, particularly the U.S. And I think that's that's actually quite important if you want this to really succeed. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for your time. This is great. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael Kugelman. That was very helpful and uh, timely. And I I always love chatting with him about various South Asia issues. And as I mentioned at the outset, if you want to schedule a time to chat with me about anything on your mind and you are a premium subscriber, please do jump on that before all the slots are taken. Uh, Otherwise, if you are not yet a premium subscriber, you can become one by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or just follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com and you can become a premium subscriber and support the show and unlock a host of, of bonuses. Thank you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.